you play back the tape on the first podcast episode we did of this season? Absolutely not. You had so many opportunities. Look, all I'm saying is the shiv heads are coming. Does that make sense grammatically? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I think it does. <laughs> Sorry, it? this show is entirely about competition. Yeah. <laughs> Both succession and TV DNA. I also just want to quickly say my sister is currently watching it and is just WhatsApping me constantly. That, my friend, is hubris and knocking at the door. <laughs> is that one of the old guard hubris with Hugo? And so we talk through the episode then. Might as well while we're here. I've written down face eggs. I can't really remember why. She's got a thing about eyeballs. But I think we can all agree that Neil was probably incredibly envious of Peter's cheese. this podcast was recorded remotely and contains adult themes and language hello and welcome to tv dna succession season four the finale episode 10 with open eyes my name is adam henning and like a cog built to fit only one machine it's grace chapman Guess who Kendall think it's going to be? It'll blow your mind. (laughs) And with the knowledge to take down solar systems, it's Izzy Dixon. I'm so sorry, Mummy, I licked the cheese. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you've kind of ruined my next intro, which is whatever you do, don't lick his cheese. It's Damien Cooper. Silence in the courtyard, silence in the street. The biggest fool in England is just about to speak. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what larks. What larks we have had watching this show. May they continue for the next hour and however long we're recording this podcast for. Before we get into what everyone thought, I just wanted to point out that episode title was again taken from Dream Song 29 by John Berryman. And the full part of that poem that it comes from, that those particular words come from, is ghastly with open eyes, he attends blind. Let's get some initial thoughts then on the finale. I mean, it was just amazing. I'm trying to think of all the adjectives I want to use to describe this hour and a half of telly. It was exquisite, painful, just perfect. It was perfect for me. What an amazing job. Everyone involved, take a bow. Just brilliant. Totally agree. It was so satisfying and ended in a way where I feel like that's the only way it could have ended. But at the same time, every little twist and turn. I think it took me about two hours to watch this episode because I kept having to pause it and just like take a little breather. So much was going on. But it just felt so inevitable. And it's so amazing to write an episode of TV where everyone is on tenterhooks, but everything comes together in a way where it feels like there could have been no other outcome. Yeah, the thing that I thought about this episode was it almost could have been a standalone film in and of itself. As I was watching, I was kept on thinking, like, is there enough in the beginning of this episode for us to possibly come into this blind? Because it felt cinematic. It felt like the plotting of it was all there that, you know, all the problems with the siblings and then that was it. They were united for their big final meeting with the the big bad. I really enjoyed it. I watched it twice. I forced myself to watch it the first time just for fun, which is the first time in this series I've done that without stopping every five minutes for quotes. I agree, yeah. I genuinely did not see that final 20, 25 minutes coming. I thought we were going to have the Sibs United. And the other big thing is the episode 
you know, was over more than one day. We got a day and a half out of an episode. <laughs> Took an hour 20, so it should have done. <laughs> I think your point about could this have been a standalone thing kind of links to one of my minor qualms about this in that we get these arguments, conversations, discussions about who should be the successor. And this is the main reason that Catherine stopped watching the show is that it, it felt like those, you know, that was happening just repeatedly. And in a way, those 39 earlier episodes, glorious as they were, did repeat that whole conversation and argument. And I just felt in this episode, I didn't need it again. It feels really harsh to criticise this show because it is so utterly brilliant. And I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this episode as well. I've got one other qualm, which I'll, I'll save to a little bit later on. But yeah, I just was like, do we really have to go through this? We've had it quite a few times in this season. And usually, often, it comes at a point where it is really interesting and crucial and different. This time, it didn't feel like it. I think what was felt different to me this time was the desperation. I feel like it was much more desperate, particularly from Kendall, that for me just felt like enough of a slight shift that I was like, I was in. But I think in many ways, I think this is the right time for this show to end there. There really is no more story. I mean, we can talk about what we think happens when it goes to black, but this is absolutely the right time for this show to finish. About desperation. Um, so we've already seen, obviously before this episode, Rome just completely fall out of the arse of it. But I would argue that Shiv is equally as desperate as Ken throughout the whole episode. It's only she stops being as desperate as Ken becomes desperate. I think all that stuff in the opening scene with Matson, she is incredibly desperate to the point that I think that's the, what helps turn Matson off of her. Does that make sense grammatically? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I think it does. I think the part of this episode I absolutely enjoyed the most was the siblings actually coming together and spending time together and having this camaraderie between them because so much of this show is about the conflict between them. And there's some really lovely moments which are few and far between and I think work great because they're few and far between. Things like Kendall breaking down at the end of last season uh, in Italy and telling Shiv and Roman the truth about the the waiter and the, you know, murder cover-up incident. And then this scene with them all in the kitchen, I just loved. I could have watched that on repeat. But those are so expertly done because when they're sewn in, you're lulled into such a sense of security. Even though we know what these people are like, even after four seasons of seeing them just battle each other, we know this isn't going to last. And yet, like Damien, I was still in this kind of false sense of security, thinking maybe this is it, maybe they've learned, maybe these four seasons of power struggles and infighting ends with them realising the only way that they can achieve something and move on is together. And of course that doesn't happen because the Roys are the Roys. And there's something so heartbreaking about that that we absolutely know that, but it's a gut punch that final 10 minutes yeah the false I was so I bought fully into the false sense of hope I was like yes Sibs like when they walked into Waystar together I was like this is amazing but like you it's like I just never learn ultimately this show is a tragedy it was never gonna it was never gonna end in a good way but I just thought it was amazing that the waiter was the final thing because obviously we've all talked in the podcast about you know, that's still this question, right? And for that to come up in the last 10 minutes again, the fact that that was the end of season one, it just felt like everything was coming full circle. 
I just said, well, I, I think the other thing that we can take away from this final episode is, you know, we discussed about who was going to end up on top, who would be the king at the end. And I think it's safe to say that really the, the real king is the power behind the king and is the king maker. So I think whoever is kind of instrumental in that decision is probably the winner. I'm just saying that maybe Team Shiv hashtag retroactive. Yeah, <laughs> there's no way in the world I'm giving it to Team Shiv. Absolutely <laughs> not. Izzy, who did you predict was going to be that? I I kind of wondered if it was going to be Kendall. I've also throughout the series been Team Shiv, but I kind of wondered if it was going to be Kendall because it, it feels like that was where it was setting up to go in the first episode of series one and whether we were going to go through kind of four seasons of this battle for it to then be Kendall. And then when they talked about oh, the guy's name, I can never remember, but the guy from Volta, then potentially talking to him, I was like, oh, that might be a really interesting twist if he comes back, because obviously there's a really antagonistic exchange between him and Kendall in season one, episode one. I definitely sort of feel there is no winner at the end of this. Like, I don't think Tom is... I mean, all the reviews I've read are like, Tom comes out on top and Tom's Tom ends up winning. I don't, I didn't feel that at all. I think Tom is an absolute empty human suit, as they describe him. Like, he's he's going to have no power. He's going to have no authority. That scene where Lucas essentially just humiliates him at dinner before offering him the CEO position, you're just like, he's just going to completely fuck him. Like, over and over again, he's going to be so miserable. So it really felt like, to me, like, everyone lost. Yeah, I mean, he's just going to be a pain sponge forever, isn't he? Yeah, pain sponge. I mean, that was almost like, oh, God, like wincing at that whole speech. But that's where he lives happiest. So I think he has one in the, in the sense that he has no worries anymore about, about money. He is the CEO. And I think if you play back the tape on the first podcast episode we did of this season, then you will, uh, you'll find out I was Team, team Tom from, uh, from episode one. Absolutely not. You had so many opportunities to say who you think. You went Greg at one point. Uh, when we made our predictions, I said Tom Wamsgams. Look, all I'm saying is the shiv heads are coming. I'm going to find the audio of me saying it and edit it into this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, enough of the silly competition. Sorry, it? this show is entirely about competition. Yeah. <laughs> Both succession and TV DNA. I also just want to quickly say my sister is currently watching it and is just WhatsApping me constantly. Okay. <laughs> Bit distracted. And any good WhatsApps she sent so far? Just lots of emojis. You know, that one that looks like the screen mask? Mainly that. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we talk through the episode then? Might as well while we're here. Absolutely. We open with both Ken and Shiv in bullish mood. And as Damo's kind of already alluded to, I think this is part of what turns Matson off Shiv a little bit. Roman's AWOL and Tom is concerned for his position. The thing I liked most about this is that we open, Ken is in his car being uh, driven by, what's his name? I was about to call him Ferenc. What's his name? I think he's Colin, isn't he? The bodyguard? No? His, his driver is called Fikret. That's it, Fikret. Ferenc is some Hungarian dude, sorry. And there he is, just shy of playing some Jay-Z. Isn't that how we open episode one? Isn't he being driven and then walking into the building? We think we see maybe another series or a few opens to episodes of him trying to be Big Daddy Corpo. Yeah, just quick corrections. It was the Beastie Boys that he's listening to in the first episode. But you're right. I loved that tie in to the first time that we see Kendall. And this was a bit more of a, yeah, like a 
I mean, we say they're not serious people, but he definitely had a lot on his mind, didn't he, in the back of that car. But yeah, I mean, Shiv, when she was sort of, like you say, being quite bullish with with Matson and mapping out the plan and getting the chess pieces in play and who's going to vote yes and who's going to vote no, I suddenly realised, I was like, I don't think the words, would you like to be American CEO, Shiv, have ever come out of Matson's mouth. And that worried me. He's never explicitly offered it to her. And I know I've noticed that last episode and... I always had a feeling in the back of my mind that he was going to double-cross her. It never felt like he had made the decision. He was just letting her assume that he had. I mean, he was never going to say it, but that cartoon of her puppeteering him, when she had described herself as Matson's puppet in the episode before, it must have had a little dent to his ego, right? Yeah, I love that it comes up a couple of times. Shiv says it and then Tom mentions it. And both times he's like, hey, no, no, it's not a problem. God, no, that doesn't bother me at all. I'm absolutely fine. I'm, I totally don't have a super fragile ego. <laughs> there were some lovely moments in this. The Carpe the DM, I quite enjoyed. From the Pendle scene, definitely. They also, this, the last thing he says before the titles is, I fucking got this. And then the titles come on and you think, oof. Gosh, do you, do you though? Do you really? Don't fucking got this. Don't fucking got it. Anytime anyone in succession says, I win, I got it. You're like, oh, that you've lost. <laughs> yeah, that my friend is hubris and knocking at the door. <laughs> is that one of the old guard hubris with Hugo? and? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's in there. Yeah. Hubris is still in the sauna. Sauna, sauna. <laughs> I just wanted to talk about some of the shift quotes. From that scene, because money, honey. Uh, and then she always talks about for Roman to turn up from whatever jerk dungeon he's being pity spanked in. Mm. A lovely image. It was Shiv talking about Tom again, which I thought was fascinating, especially compared to her reaction to him later on. She describes him as plausible corporate matter and a highly interchangeable modular part. And I would say that to his face. <laughs> <laughs> he also says he'd suck the biggest dick in the room and Matson has the beautiful response love is in the air <laughs> I always think about when they say about lines of succession being complicated airflow and what Shiv said about Tom was a ex- perfect example of complicated airflow just say lots of words and just don't really commit either way but in some ways she's giving him the perfect CV for what Matson's looking for Fair, yeah. oh the irony <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's interesting plotting that relationship about at the various points at which she does appear to be bigging Tom up and setting him up. It feels at moments she's kind of like, absolutely, fuck you. You're dead to me. And there's other moments where she is actually semi-backing him, but not obviously doing so. Yeah, I mean, she doesn't really rate him, does she? And he asks her, to be honest, later on, when she finally discovers that Matson is putting him forward as the CEO. You know, he says, be honest, you would have done the the same thing had the roles been reversed. But I think the key thing is that obviously, Matson, it feels really awkward. Shiv feels sort of quite hyper and it just doesn't rub off on our cool Swede. It just seems early on in that episode that they didn't get along as well anymore. It wasn't just the two of them making plans, you know, in, in dark corridors. It was then in front of the whole of the rest of the team. And I think she was making him look disorganized, you know, because she was so on top of everything. not Maybe disorganised the wrong word. Well, no, and, and he says it later. It's almost like she's henpecking him. And I use that in air quotes rather than using the word seriously. 
But it feels like that. He says later to Tom about she's got ideas. Well, I've got my own ideas. And I wonder if that's also part of it. Like you said, he's the leader of the cool gang. And here she is telling him what he should be doing. And there's one thing he can't stand, and that's being told what to do. That conversation, which you're talking about now, Demo, between Matson and Tom, where he says those kind of things was the most frustrating fucking conversation in succession. I was so angry on behalf of Shiv, who's basically saying she's too strong and I fancy her. Therefore, I can't really work with her. He is the fucking definition of toxic masculinity, isn't he? I think the one thing that gives me a little bit of comfort about this is... He's avoided so many issues so far because of Shiv. You know, there's the whole situation with Eber that Shiv has kind of given him advice about sort of sidestepping. Shiv's got the kind of political know-how that might well be coming to trip him up. The whole thing with the numbers, Shiv has sort of been managing that. As much as he's like, well, I've got my own ideas, I don't want someone puppeteering me. I think there's a real hint that he's actually not super bright. He's he's kind of a dumbass (laughs) and quite possibly... This hall does really have a future. They may not be serious people, but I think there's a very good chance he's also not a serious person. Definitely not. Yeah, I think so. And I think also Shiv is savvy enough to know that as this scene is going on, she's not getting the vibes back, right? He is giving total like, oh, we're going to break up in a couple of months energy. And she's trying to plan a summer holiday together, you know, in a couple of months time. That's the kind of energy that I'm getting between them. And I think that's why she keeps going more and more, proving more how valuable she is. The thing is, when she actually speaks to her mum and she finds out where Roman is, the phrases she uses, she says, that was an associate of mine indicating they got a fix on Roman. And she could have just said, he's at my mum's, I'm just going to head off there now. Yeah, I felt that whole bit of her, even just deciding to go and find Roman, was a hint that she knew things weren't maybe as secure as she'd originally thought they were and it was it was kind of her being like I think I've got this in the bag but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna leave this a chance I'm gonna go and hustle and make sure I'm really getting this through the door an abundance of caution just to close nice if you will mm. and we know it'll close nice surely right <laughs> it always closes nice would we say that Lucas finds it difficult to hold a whole woman in his head gosh I think he would struggle to hold even, you know, half a woman in his head. I mean, he's lost a lot of blood, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Or to his penis. (laughs) Should we talk about the phone conversation between Shiv and Tom that that comes after this? So, again, I I think I said in the last episode that I was hoping for some reparation between the two of them. And it feels like this is coming from Shiv at this point. She's the one who's saying, she's asking if he's interested in a real relationship. And she doesn't do it in a particularly... (laughs) convincing way I would say because he's like you've fallen in love finally with our scheduling opportunities and that it would all be convenient if they stayed together but her point is we've said and done the worst possible things to each other and once you've done that we're free and I think we said this before but there's big George and Martha energy from who's afraid of Virginia Woolf now between those two there's the line that Tom has about what we should uh, Czechoslovakia it you know we should make it a all lovely velvet parting of the ways. And I wonder if, because he's kind of glib about it and she's already feeling not sure about what she's doing with Matson, she's obviously upset that she's double-crossed her brothers and I don't think she's mentioned it, uh, but her dad's just died. So I I wonder if that's why we get this kind of weird, evasive conversation. She says, let's have a serious conversation, but she can't bring herself to do it. 
this is because she wants to, but she doesn't have the bandwidth or the ability to to really have a proper conversation with him. I mean, for me, this was less about where Shiv is at that moment and more that this this is the only way any of the Roy siblings can express love. This is like, to the best of their ability, a really, really emotional exchange. But they are so fucked up that this is this is about as real as it gets. It's less for me about where she is at that exact moment and more about just who she is as a person. And that's desperately sad. I mean, it was really heartbreaking. And I think it was the first hint as well that there was a kind of power shift between Shiv and Tom, right? Because for three seasons, four seasons, Shiv has always had the upper hand and that dramatically changes by the end of this episode. And I think this is the first movement of that. Wait, she says, do you want a relationship? And he says, I don't know. Yeah. She asks the questions and and he doesn't answer it. And then he he follows up with, you don't like to fail a test, do you, Siobhan? I loved that line. It was such a great, a great reader Shiv. Let's be honest about it. But I also loved, I don't know if it's him or her that said, it. I think it's him. He said, are there any positives about the nightmare we've shared? Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's Shiv. Is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, couples counselling, if ever it was needed. Stat. <laughs> Let's move on to finding Roman then. So Caroline has called Shiv and told her that Roman is with her. Caroline, their mum, obviously invited them all over in the funeral episode. And Greg finds this out via Tom, I believe. And he tells Kendall that that's where Greg is. That's where Roman is. Sorry. Fuck that up. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the early bird catches the Rome. <laughs> uh, there was another line from Kendall that had me worried. So he finds out where he is. He's right. I'm moving, I'm moving. And the line he uses, let's bag him and tag him. His own brother. He's in killer mode. I did not like that. Handle the killer. <laughs> we jump then to them all at Caroline's place. I've written down face eggs. I can't really remember why. She's got a thing about eyeballs. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Face eggs, she calls them. Just before that, when Shiv turns up, and Rome kind of sheepishly steps across the threshold out. And Shiv is like, fucking hell, what's happened to you? And Roman says, I just had a discussion with some of your pals about the merits of liberal democracy. <laughs> I love it when, when Kendall turns up and he says, Ram to your face. And Roman's like, what happened to your face? <laughs> <laughs> and then later on, he's like, I was in a very violent fight, which I won, but I'm fine. <laughs> All really great stuff. I mean, whenever we've talked about this before many, many times, whenever we get the siblings together, they revert to being children. Loads of examples of this throughout the episode. So the Kendall calling, Romy, where are you? And obviously the meal for a king, which we'll, I'm sure, talk about. But the quote that you gave at the top of the episode, Demo, was that, you know, again, it's a playground rhyme, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the, my second favourite quote of the episode is in the following scene. But I think the, the other interesting bit about that is that Ken is just vicious. He's completely at Roman's throat. Shiv stands up, up, tries to protect him. I mean, it's not an entirely altruistic move, obviously, but he's going way too far. Like, we're already seeing that kind of dogged, possibly violent determination that Ken is showing to succeed. And I went back and watched watched the first bit of the episode again. And it feels to me like Roman by this point has already sort of given up. I know there's a bit of fight of him later in the episode, but it really does feel at this point he's he's done. Some part of him is just attached to being like, fuck it. 
Yeah, he he looked really terrible, I thought, all episode, not just in terms of being roughed up, but I thought just his mental strain that he was under. I just think he, he looked like a guy who had just been physically and metaphorically trodden down to the point where he just, I know we have lots of feelings about Roman and he's been vile in many ways, but I just felt like, God, this man needs, just needs to go off to some sort of desert island for a while. He just needs to be rid of it. I think you're absolutely right. I think also we get in the car on the way there. Ken is ringing Stewie for the second time. We've seen him before. Stewie's, you know, dodged the call and he's like, don't leave me hanging, Stewie. I can see you. And then he's on the phone. And that's when we first hear about Lawrence Yee from Walter Lawrence is talking to Matson about the possible CEO. So I wonder in that moment, if, like you said, reminded us all, Izzy, about that run-in that he has with Lawrence Yee at the beginning, and here he is kind of back at that place again, about to grasp the crown again, and Lawrence Yee somehow bucking with his vibe. And I wonder if that also sets him off a little bit. Let's stick with this. Um, go on. I'm sorry, I've written so many notes. But it's also just the end of this scene when Caroline asks Kendall if he's going to stay and then Shiv just really fucking puts the knife in. It's one of the first parts of the episode where we see Shiv put the knife in. Roman's already said you don't have it. And then Shiv says to their mum, he might be busy. You've got to call some people, yeah? He's losing, so he's very busy. And that's how that scene ends with Ken spitting feathers at how angry he is that Shiv's foot. I love Shiv just agreeing to stay for dinner and being like, I can stay for dinner. And Kendall being like, well, I guess I can stay for dinner too. <laughs> so good. Because the next thing we get with them, I think we stick with the kids throughout this bit and we'll loop back onto Tom and, and Matson. Shiv's trying to find a positive spin for them, isn't she? Something she can do for them once she's taken over. You know, what's, what's my kid going to do without his uncle's sexist and homophobic jokes? And Kendall accuses her of gloating. You grabbed the crown and pushed me out. Cunt is as cunt does. Sorry for winning, but I did. Yeah, this was actually one of my favourite shift moments of the episode. When she says, I won. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm tired of saying sorry. So why don't you take it like a man and eat it? I was like, whoa, okay. Playing them at their own game there, Shiv. Yeah, and it also, because she says that thing, then she ends that line about being pushed out. She says, push me out, so I don't know why I'm the cunt here. And then there's a pause. And then Kendall says, kind of in a Forrest Gump way, cunt is as cunt does. <laughs> and she says, oh, really? Cicero on the wheels of steel. Like, just completely cuts him down. Like, you're a fucking joke. And, you know, why shouldn't she have a moment in the sun? It's not like... It's all going to blow up in her face. <laughs> nah, it's absolutely fine. It's all going to be fine. There's something also just quickly at the beginning when <laughs> when Rome comes and joins them and he sits down and Kendall says, do you want some rum? And then he puts a little bit of emphasis on punch. <laughs> <laughs> I also enjoyed uh, Roman at the end of this very heated exchange was just like, my, what a lovely evening on the terrace. Classic succession end of scene line. <laughs> we, we do need to lead back to Tom and Lucas before we go back to the kids again, I think, because there's a key thing that happens. They've gone out for dinner, right? Tom and Lucas, you know, he's basically being interviewed and Greg's kind of hanging around as well. And they talk about Greg being the most overpaid assistant in the world at 200k a year. 
Yeah, we also have hanging. Goes more hanging than a dictator's birthday. But it's this next conversation between Tom and Lucas that's so key, right? Um, he's basically asked to pitch himself. And he says, he squeeze, I squeeze the costs and juice the revenues, cutting heads and harvesting eyeballs, give the customer what he wants. Classic sort of Tom stuff here. But when Matson pushes him, he says he's a grinder and he, I worry all night about everything. An excess of vigilance, a high tolerance for pain and physical discomfort. And I think Tom is obviously a big warrior. But it's that pain sponge that Matson's looking for, right? Someone pointed out that there's a really interesting line earlier on in the season uh, where Matson says he doesn't trust people who sleep a lot. And obviously we've had Tom in the last few episodes not being able to sleep, which I think is a really interesting little like thing they've just thrown in as a bit of spice there. I don't know how much of him saying he wanted to fuck Shiv and that he thinks Shiv wants to fuck him was also just a test to see if he can handle the pain how much of a pain sponge he is. Because he says, you know, come on, you know, we're just talking. And Tom says, oh, yeah, no, you know, we're just men, aren't we? But obviously you can see that his heart is breaking somewhat. What heart he has is breaking. (laughs) What heart he has. Yeah, why don't I get the guy who put the baby inside her instead of the baby lady? Oh, that was brutal. That was the quote I was going to give as well. But for me, that all felt like power play. It's like, I'm going to absolutely fuck you and humiliate you. And if you sit and take it, then you're the yes man that essentially I want. But Matson's power play has always been truth bombs, right? Or his version of the truth. He just loves to say it direct. And so this was like the absolute peak of that. And as you say, I think a test of Tom 100%, but I also think... He genuinely believes all of that. I mean, yeah, he's not lacking in self-confidence. The end of that brief bit where he talks about how he doesn't like Shiv having loads of ideas, he has ideas of his own. At the end of that, he says, I know everything. And then Tom's kind of like, oh, yeah, no, you, you do. Yes, absolutely. It seems the language that he uses when he's talking about sleeping with Shiv, it's like, I want to fuck her a little bit. It's like, not even I'm desperate to fuck her. It's just, I just, you know, a little bit, so I might. And under the right circumstances, I think she'd fuck me too. It's just such like almost throwaway stuff. Horrible man. But what a great comeuppance, I think, really, really quickly after this, is that, first of all, he calls him Logan Mark II, only the sexy version. And then Tom tells Greg that they're going to be okay. Greg goes for a drink at the bar, whilst Oscar and Matson are talking Swedish. And Greg uses an app... Oh, the irony, to translate the Swedish to English. It's such a genius move. But I think that conversation that Greg has with Tom first, where, you know, Tom's already said in the art gallery about your 200K, you're going to have to get busted down to 20, 30K. You're going to get done. And then afterwards, when Greg's like, oh, my God, are you OK? What's happened? Tom says, you're going to get castrated on pay, like decimated but I think I can keep you. And of course, obviously, infamously, Sporus ran off with his castrated servant, didn't we? So we get more of the Sporus, more of this epic scene from the wedding, right? Yeah, lovely, lovely stuff. But crucially, Greg finds out it won't be Shiv, which means, of course, he's going to go and feed that information to Kendall. 
I love that Greg's little like I know you know Tom thinks that Greg is Gregging for him the whole time but I just love Greg's little Kendall side hustle like it's been ongoing throughout like growing you know I remember in season one where Tom's like you're spending a lot of time with Kendall a girl could start to wonder and then now we have it paying off in this just one phone conversation where what does he say Greg says I'm at the center of the universe by being in the right place at the right time that's how he's got his salary up to 200k He's just known things or been in the right place to sort of trade off of that in so many different situations. And Tom's going to be able to save 160k a year just by dropping Greg down to 40k. I guess that's also why he's so desperate to make sure that he wads up. Yeah. <laughs> We're looking at 800k a year. Is that what he's, he's, he's looking for by giving him this knowledge to take down solar systems? <laughs> Let's switch back to the kids then. Caroline's pitching that they open a new chapter. And I thought this was, a, again, a really nice foreshadowing of what's to come right at the end of the episode. Is basically Caroline's quite keen for them all to leave the company behind and, and start afresh. And she's even got Peter's mate Jonathan along to pitch them some creamy margins. Were they trying to pitch care homes? It was like basic care, no bells and whistles. But I was trying to capture little bits of the conversation. I feel like it was a, like a, a poor man's living plus. Was that what they were trying to pitch them? Yeah, they were pushing for some really ropey shit. So after that phone conversation, we cut back to, I think it's Peter saying, in layman terms, no one can get us on this. So they're already setting up to a dubious business practice. They haven't met Saul Goodman, though, right? Saul Goodman. I quite like the fact we didn't explicitly hear what the idea was, but we get enough little tidbits from their sort of pitch that we just know it's absolutely fucking heinous. <laughs> it's, it's great. We don't need to know more than that. And that he's flown over from Monaco to pitch over some gummy fish. <laughs> and he's got to be careful about the number of days he spends in the States, right? So he's obviously a legitimate businessman. <laughs> But Kendall phones, uh, I can't remember who he phones to verify this. It comes from somebody else as well, doesn't it? Not just Greg. Is it Carolina he calls? Yes, yes. They've erased her. From, yeah, they've erased her from the New Deal announcement draft. But yeah, so <laughs> Kendall gives Shiv the news. And I think he's quite nice about doing that. Obviously, she then goes off and there's a conversation where Kendall says, can she recalibrate? And then we hear her shouting, motherfucker, from the other room. <laughs> and then Kendall was like, I think it's on. It was just hilarious. Loved this moment. I just love when he was like, well, call someone. You can find out, Queen, but don't call Matson. And she's like, well, I'm already calling him. <laughs> and it just rings out, rings out, rings out. Is he not picking up the phone? Does, does that always happen? Yeah, actually, he's always quite busy. So he doesn't answer the phone to me. So fuck you. Yeah, such a 180 from Shiv's little, you can call me anytime, anytime I'm free, I'm available, I'll pick up to Matson earlier on, right? It's just like, oh, that's a sting. I actually didn't think that, Ken I didn't know if Kendall was going to tell Shiv. I know we only had about 10 seconds when we were guessing. In a way, that was information that he could have stored up for later, but I guess he kind of knew he needed Shiv. Needed her vote. Right. It could potentially have been decisive, Shiv's vote. So uh, he wanted to have that. Glad he got that in the bag. I bet he's thrilled. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I cut the chase, Blondie. <laughs> um, I loved that. We, we then get them talking about what they're going to do and they need to call someone and they they put Telus forward as someone to call and she's like, I fucking hate Telus. He's the worst. Yeah, yeah, he's the worst. We need a read. Call Telus. 
Is it Tennis who calls them the incredible fuck brother bandwagon? Yeah, as does everyone, apparently. Everyone. Yeah, I, I loved that reveal where he was like, who calls us that? And she was like, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> they need to present a united front with a coherent plan, not a cop-out at the fudge factory. That's what um, they need to do. They do that, probably got it sewn up. Yeah. Then we get the whole who will be king conversation. I mean, there was some lovely stuff in this. It was just a shame that we had to have it all over again. Roman comes up with his dad. Dad said I should have it. And Schiff has a brilliant response to that. And that what else did he say when no one else was around? That he was the Zodiac killer. That he did too bad. <laughs> lovely stuff. I mean, it's so interesting to me, but all of them have been told by Logan at different points they're going to get the company. I honestly, truly do not believe he ever had any intention of giving it to any of them. I, I don't think he was ever thinking about it. I don't think he'd ever made a succession plan in any way. But it's just how he's, it's how he's had this really fucking dysfunctional, horrible relationship with them is that when shit is really, really, really bad and he feels like he's kind of losing them, that's the carrot that's being dangled. So of course, none of them want to do anything else with their lives, even though none of them probably really want it or are suited to it. It's all they've just been kind of groomed to want to do from such an early age. It's just, it's almost like there's no escaping that for any of them. And of course, of course, it all comes down to the fact that for all of them, it's because Logan told them they deserved it at some point. I think you're absolutely right. And Shiv says shortly afterwards, I, th- I don't think dad gave a fuck. I don't think dad wanted any of us to do it. And it's that later on, we get this virtual dinner with Logan where he's essentially making everyone at the party perform for him. I mean, okay, he performs first, but then he's getting everyone to perform for him. And that's what he's done with his kids throughout their entire life, is make them perform to his tune. Just to talk about that, I think also the power dynamic in that performing that's going around that table is he is very much holding court when he does it. And then it's just an idea of him kind of giving favour. So he says to Jerry, do your limerick? And everyone's like, great. And he he's a fan of that. Connor does his Logan Roy, I'm a little teapot. And he doesn't even look at it. He doesn't react. It's like it's not even happening. He gets Carl singing and he undermines him the whole time telling him he's shit. So I think it's really interesting. Like you said, it's that idea of those three children. Those are the three different ways in which he was treating those kids. And usually... One got his favour, one was ignored, and the other was incredibly undermined. And that just revolved between the three of them, one of those three states at any time. Yeah, Damo, you just you talking about that reminded me of Shiv's line to Logan of, you're a human fucking gaslight. Yes, 100%. And we see all the kids crying at that video. And I think that's what they're, I think what you've just described is what they're crying about. I don't think it's the song, and I don't think it's them seeing their dad on the video again. I think it is them realising that that's what he was doing to them. I don't know. I think for me, I think in some ways it's both. And I think it's always been both. And that's what's so tragic about that relationship is he's awful to them. And they recognise that, you know, they talk about it quite openly. Like they talk about even stuff like them, you know, him hitting Roman as kids and things like that. And yet at the same time, they're in this horrible situation where they still kind of love him and want his approval. And you do just think how much healthier would all of them be if they'd been in any kind of situation where they could be like, you know what, fuck this, you don't treat me like this, I'm done. But it was never going to happen. And yeah, I found that scene really, really emotive with them watching him because I think I definitely agree it was part them seeing what an absolute kind of bully he could be, but at the same time knowing they miss him. And that must be, you know, deeply confusing and 
just explains so much about why they all are the way they are. I absolutely agree. And I think the, the other tiny thing in that scene that I noticed is when you hear someone's voice after they've died, it's like a really powerful thing when you're like, oh my God, I, it's just like, yeah, the voice often goes first in your, in your like often in memory. And to, to have that kind of home video is, is incredibly, it's incredibly emotional, no matter how you feel about someone. And once you hear their voice again, can really get you. That's what Roman did, right? Roman was ringing to hear Logan's voice on the voicemail when we came to the end of that episode when he passed. But talking about dying or killing, if we jump back to the three of them going for a nighttime swim, which felt to me like even before they talked explicitly about killing him, it had real partner's tail energy to it. Yeah, it was interesting, wasn't it? There was the two sides of this, because just before this, we get Kendall's quite logical and impassioned speech about why it should be him. Roman doesn't even want it. He doesn't. He just can't say it. We can't say it's Shiv when yesterday she was singing Matson's song. Roman lacks heft and looks pathetic, was what a line, I think. And he has his whole it's me speech. And it's a really, it is a good and convincing speech. And it's the only, he's right. He's totally right. He is the only way that they can win it convincingly. But then you get the conversation between Shiv and Roman where she says, I hate him and I fear you. And it's just whether Shiv hates Kendall less than she hates Matson and or Tom, I guess. She doesn't know it's Tom at this point, does she? She doesn't know. I mean, she says he'd be unbearable, you'd be a disaster. Just the extremities of where they all are is amazing. But yeah, I thought the, the swim was really interesting and like Kendall sort of rashly walking into the water. But I really loved it when they did an impression of Kendall, Shiv and Roman. It was, and I wonder as well if that was half uh, Shiv and Roman and half Sarah Snook and Kieran Culkin doing an impression of Jeremy Strong. <laughs> 100%. But I think just before that, when they discuss it, Shiv says, horseplay gone wrong, just a biff to the head and a bonk on the noggin with a coconut. I loved that line. It just sounded so fun to say. There's also, he goes limp, what goes around comes around. And... Uh, <laughs> If we kill him, we get to go to bed. There's another one just before that where Roman says that Matson had played Shiv like a pregnant cello, which I thought was quite funny because we then obviously found that she played everyone with a very pregnant pause at the end of the episode. Ooh, very good. He does immediately apologise for that comment, Roman, which is hashtag growth. It's uncharacteristic, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, because it comes in response to her saying Matson took me seriously and a kind of he knows what that's like to believe that someone takes you seriously and then find out they don't really. It is a really sweet moment when they do give it up to Kendall. You know, they talk about the fact that it's too much murder admin and they present him with the bauble. Enjoy your bauble. And also really great that that all happened on water, given Kendall's relationship with water. Well, he, he had something more solid underneath him, didn't he? He wasn't on a lilo. He was on a, a fully made wooden platform. And once again, he was lying face upward, relaxed, rather than face downward, distraught. Should we talk about meal fit for a king then? Meal fit for a king. Meal fit for a king. I was marginally concerned that they were actually going to unintentionally kill Kendall. <laughs> what is it? Sprouting potatoes, 0% milk and wartime pickle. As a star, and then there's a lot of hot sauce. And then, of course, the nobbies, because Peter doesn't like the nobbies, so Caroline freezes them. I tell you what, if there's anything that sums up Caroline's mothering technique, it's frozen nobbies. <laughs> 
But Kendall's having an appetizer of yogurt that he thinks has gone off, which he's eating with a wooden spoon. Yeah, it had real afters at a house party energy to it, didn't it? Because Kendall obviously now had it, that's probably the most chill we've ever seen Kendall. He just sat there on the side, cap on, just, you know, letting things wash over him, not getting stressed out. My favourite thing in that, or one of my favourite things, should I say, in that scene was, we don't see it that often, is obviously when they're taking the piss out of their mum, they speak in an English accent, because they would, because their mum's English, and that's the shorthand for them. But just those moments when they were, like, talking about the nobbies was really enjoyable. And I have to say, how phenomenal was Sarah Snook's triple nobby catch? (laughs) So good. An Emmy just for that. Yeah. I think I saw the moment she broke character when she was like, fucking hell, I did that. (laughs) I also really enjoyed her putting hot sauce in the blender and just saying this is a healthful tonic. (laughs) It's like, Tabasco, more Tabasco. (laughs) I brought it over in a hanky. Before we move on, you know, Neil isn't here, but I think we can all agree that Neil was probably incredibly envious of Peter's cheese. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. I I think what I loved most about this episode was when it was over and they were all leaving and you get Peter saying, complete fucking waste of time. (laughs) I um, really enjoyed the end of this scene with kings don't wear silly hats, kings wear crowns, and the dumping of the horrible, helpful tonic all over Kendall. And I do wonder how much of this scene was scripted in a way. Like it felt so, I don't know, just really like natural for them all. And I know they were brilliant with the lines anyway, but it did feel like a lot of they talked over each other. It was just really playful and fun. And I I just wonder how much is, and I even wonder if that tipping on the head at the end was entirely Kieran Culkin's idea. Yeah, I, I wondered the same. And I think obviously Succession is so known for that really rapid fire dialogue and that really like almost theatre-like, you know, amazing wordplay. And this just felt, I think part of the reason I love the scene is it felt so relaxed because that was all stripped back. And like you, I wondered if they were kind of improving, and it, it just felt like they were just having a good time. And it wasn't about the kind of amazing well-crafted dialogue. It was about them dumping a blender full of horrible liquids on Jeremy Strong's head. I think also because now that the elephant in the room has been dealt with, we kind of get to see them finally have a moment after all the horrendous stuff they've been through in the past week, that this is them reverting to probably what they were like in the good times as kids. And I'm assuming meal fit for a king was something they probably did every so often to mark an important occasion. And it was always just an absolute fuck about with whatever was in the kitchen. Yeah, it it was a really lovely way to sort of send off that sibling relationship because I don't think it's ever going to be the same again sort of after what happens next. So, yeah, it was really lovely to have that before we moved into the the end game. I do want to move us on to that, though, because we are running long. Uh, Let's talk about stickering perambulating circuits or SPCs. I mean, my favourite thing about this was Connor's little giggle after he admitted there'd been a first round where he went in (laughs) to... everything that he wanted and we also learn that they're going long distance guys i mean it's that two-week itch isn't it can i just talk about winner's change in wardrobe what she was wearing i don't think we've seen her dress like that previously i think she's very much taken to a new place in society um but yeah also she wants to get rid of everything 
because there's a cow print sofa that's got to come in. I'm guessing in time for her play reading in six to eight months. I'm so glad she's doing a play again. <laughs> like that was one of my best highlights of Willa with the sand mice. I was so glad we got some Connor and Willa in this episode. I think I wrote down when, when they mentioned Connor on the phone, I was like, oh, I need Connor. But I couldn't go around and visit Willa, certainly not in my cow print shirt anyway. <laughs> Shout out also to Willa's horrified expression when it turns out that Mencken might not actually be president. Um, And we only get that little mention of that in this episode, but actually they're recounting the votes in Wisconsin. And it looks like it could be like it's been declared early and actually it's going to go to the other guy. And her look of just, oh God, when it turns out that they, Connor might not be going to Slovenia, is great. Yeah, bad news for Willa, but at least some hope for the United States of America. Exactly. I just like that it was described as a great reallocation because I feel like Connor's uh, politics probably does occasionally veer into the great replacement theory. So the great replacement theory is this absolute batshit crazy theory that the Jews are replacing Christians in this planet so that they can obviously keep on top of the world because obviously everyone knows that's absolutely what's happening. And that's that's hardcore Menkin right there and probably a little bit of Connor too. Definitely sits in the world of cryogenics. Oh, yeah. Eugenics. Cryogenics, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) But it's at this thing that Shiv learns that it's not going to be... Well, Shiv learns that it's going to be Tom. Shiv tells Tom. Tom learns it's not going to be Shiv at this point. Or learns that she knows. No, I've totally confused myself now. What does Tom and Shiv learn? Someone help me. Yeah, well, I was going to say, Tom goes full Justin Timberlake and then sing. He says, it's going to be May. (laughs) Pretty much word for word, right? The key thing that Tom learns is that Greg told. Greg released the information. And Greg didn't tell him that he'd told Kendall. Yeah, absolutely vital. And then we get, like, this is where it tips into the final third, right? Because I think Shiv says, like, you know, good luck, motherfucker. And then walks away from Tom. And we get those, like, surging strings of the, the score. And you're like, okay, here we go. We're going in. Yeah, followed by two of my favourite moments of the episode, which was the bust up in the bathroom, Slapgate. <laughs> Beautifully choreographed. So good. And then seeing Matson agitated, seeing him not be the cool Swede, I thought was really, really brilliant. Yeah, I think I think maybe one of my favourite moments of the episode was the moment Greg slapped back. I mean, I gave a little cheer out. I loved that. I felt like it had been coming since Tom was throwing tiny bottles of Evian at Greg in that office. I don't know which season it was, but yeah, it was very slappy, wasn't it? (laughs) The mad thing is, I think actually Tom liked it and respected him more for it. Yeah, probably. But yeah, and then we're into the boardroom, right? We're into the end game now. Uh, All of the usual suspects get their little moment in the sun. So Carolina suggests to Shiv that maybe now that we're changing the culture of backstabbing and we're in this new era, maybe get rid of Hugo. (laughs) Love that. But she's not just planted that seed with Shiv, because when Tom comes in and Hugo's sucking up to him, he kind of just goes, so where's Carolina? And then waves him away. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if Carolina was on the sly working both sides. Oh, does Carolina won? Although at the end, Hugo is around and Carolina's not, which I thought was interesting. Well, he, he says, doesn't he, where's, where's Carolina? I think Hugo fucked it up at the retreat, didn't he? Like he massively ruined it. And famously, someone did respond to our Spotify poll on, on who should be on the kill list. And uh, Hugo was the winner. 
<laughs> Let's talk about Logan's office quickly then. So Kendall kind of has this moment of, do I do I sit down at this chair? And I think it's Roman who says it's not a magic chair. Go for it. I feel like this was the first moment of the change in Shiv and probably Roman as well. But when he sits in that chair, the look, the tiniest look from Shiv and from Roman of this just grimace. And when he puts his feet up on the desk, it's just, I really thought that was the first wobble moment. It's also just the kind of lean back in it and the little shuffle from side to side in it. And it just, his face is so fucking smug. I struggle with this and I struggle that that's, there's got to be more to the reason that she changes her mind. Given all that we've gone through so far in this episode and that whole conversation, I wondered whether another factor might have been Kendall offering Stewie a, a, like an executive chair or whatever it is he offers Stewie. And it's kind of like the, you know, jobs for boys, that, that sort of club thing going on. And the other thing I, the only other thing I could pin it on was he's just pretty bland and useless at the board meeting, right? Frank gives him the floor and he doesn't say anything. He's just like, it's a bad deal. Me and Roman won it, but it's a bad deal. We're confident we've got the votes. Let's just do it all for dad. Let's move on to the vote. He doesn't doesn't convey anything about what they are what they're about or what they believe or why the board should make the decision in that way. But even those three things combined, for me, I still find Shiv's switch difficult to swallow. I think it's like you say, you know, she she accuses Tom of being an empty fucking suit, and I think she sees Ken as the same thing. So, like you said. Stewie comes in, you know, Ken's already said Stewie's a bit fucking wobbly on the walk in. Stewie turns up and like you said, Stewie's been given an amazing job. Shiv was never offered that when they were having the conversation, like you rightly pointed out, Adam. I think that's it. She's looking and she's thinking nothing's fucking changed. He's promised her the fiefdom of ATN. She doesn't want ATN. Yeah, I I was, it was such a weird thing to offer her because I was like, I don't feel she's ever cared about that. But she could shape the news to her own political agenda, given ATM. This is something that I thought I'd, I forgot to mention before. So we've had this whole thing about succession and a zero-sum game. Someone has to be on top. And then Kendall suggesting that was almost kind of like when Alexander the Great fell and his empire was split into the different offshoots. But inevitably, they all tried to kill each other and it never worked out. And I think that's what we saw with the with the Roys, and I think you're right, it's that idea of it's not what she wanted. In fact, really, if we're being honest, she never wanted any of this. You know, she enjoyed working in politics, and then Logan dragged her out just when she thought she was out, they pulled her back in. Hey, Adam. Indeed. I mean, what makes this feel even more cruel to me is that Kendall actually has a real big brother moment with Roman in the scene before. So Jerry comes in, it freaks out Roman. He doesn't want to see anyone. He'll call in the vote. He's lost face, literally and figuratively. And Kendall gives him a hug. I mean, obviously, I know Kendall needs him there in the boardroom to for that show of unity and that show of strength and, and all the rest of it. So Kendall does need him there. But he holds him and he gives him he gives him the love that <laughs> no, you're disagreeing with me. I think it causes Roman pain to receive this love, but I think it is what he needs. So I've watched this hug quite a few times now because I was like, what is going on there? At first I thought brotherly hug, but then I watched it again and Kendall is ramming Roman's face just where the stitches are into his shoulder. And I, I think it's not clear whether Kendall was intending 
to pop the stitches. I really, I really think that. I don't think it's clear. I don't think it's clear either way. But what, but what, for what purpose? Just to throw Roman off. Just, just sort of make him feel as low as possible so he just succumbs. And a certain dominance, I guess, because Roman is sort of wavering on like, maybe it should be me actually. And it's like, no, 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 no. You've agreed, you've agreed. I mean, first of all, I, I like that you've used the word Romanoff there. Well, it's just that, right? We all know what happened. Logan used to beat Roman. That's how Roman was kept in check with violence. And so what does he do? He causes him unimaginable physical pain when he's already weak. He literally, he almost, sorry, he doesn't literally, but he almost smothers him. He's got his hand on the back of his head. He's grinding that cut into his shoulder and, you know, Roman said, ow, ow, that fucking hurts. He doesn't stop. He continues. He lets go. And Roman's like, oh, fuck you. Fuck you. Uh, but he immediately cows to him. So it's just about controlling him. And he's doing it through fear. Much says, like his dad did. He says to him afterwards, it could have been you. Roman's basically realised, acknowledged that it was never going to be him. He was never a serious contender for the job, no matter what his dad said to him, ever. He was always a fuck up from the very beginning. And Kendall's trying to say it could have been, you know, it's not, it's not going to be you, but it could have been you. You could have done this. I think that's the carrot to go with the stick. And both of those are just to make him be in the fucking room for the vote. Yeah, and it's it's what Logan did, wasn't it? It's what they've seen. And, you know, I know when they don't watch Succession, they're like, oh, isn't it just going to be a lot about kind of business and deals and stuff like that? And I, I think really it's about family and trauma and the kind of intergenerational cycles of what we repeat. I've always felt like it was it was really about that more than anything else. And I think it's really interesting that he's sort of causing him pain and also also sort of giving him love that he doesn't get there's there's a really weird sort of dichotomy in that whole hug where it's it's horrible but also he's supporting him and he's sort of it's the carrot and stick thing like Damien says and Um, I I was like I don't really know what's going on and I'm still a bit undecided but isn't that exactly what living with Logan was like yeah and Logan does weigh heavily over the scene right we get the shot of his chair and his picture and all of his belongings and stuff so his presence is still very much in the air. Yeah, I took that to be Kendall very much surrounded by the ghosts of Logan. What do we have? Like you said, we have the chair, we have the pictures of him with world leaders, there's the Spartan helmet, there's like a drawing of an old Scottish warrior that appears to be in the McDonald Tartan, and then that cover of Time magazine with Logan saying, ready to grow the empire or something like that. All the greatness. I mean, we've talked about it before on the episode, this idea that Logan has come from nothing, right? It's the classic, pulled himself up by his bootstrap. But his kids have lived the lives of wealthy, privileged kids. They don't have, for want of a better word, the chutzpah or the work ethic to really do what needs to be done. You know, that that classic thing of rich kids will always be somewhat of a disappointment to their parents if their parents grew up poor. Yeah. Let's uh, let's talk about this ending then. So they go through the vote. We have the whole voting thing going on. Uh, it's essentially a tie. There's a bit of tension before Roman eventually goes with Kendall. And then Shiv can't do it and has to leave the room. Yeah, well, just before that, when Ken's pushing for the vote, he says, uh, look, no one's going to change their mind, so let's just move to the vote. <laughs> I'm like a cog built for only one machine. The desperation from Kendall at this point. But it is that... Yeah. She says you can't be CEO because you killed someone. He tries to claim it as a false memory thing. 
I felt that was all a bit unnecessary. I, I know you said it was a, a nice callback, and I get that. Yeah, it was just adding insult to injury. And then Roman basically saying that his kids aren't even his. Oh, my goodness. It was so stressful, wasn't it? They were just, I feel like the killing thing was the thing that Shiv always had in her back pocket in case she needed it. And she needed it now, I think. Probably slightly to justify her not wanting to vote when it probably wasn't actually that. I think it was probably lots of other things, lots of other, I don't know, I feel like the dominoes were already set up. And then the killing thing is just her knocking them all down. I don't think it's only that. But yeah, I, I mean, I, the, the Roman thing was just, it was just really brutal. And then like the actual physical fighting was quite shocking. I mean, Kendall had Roman's head like in his hands, like squeezing tight. And it was all behind these glass walls. Like you could not, <laughs> you could not hide. They're not serious people, are they? And everyone saw they weren't serious people. I think what one of the things about this scene, and I guess it's because it's kind of the kind of big final scene, I guess, to an extent, is that it feels like everything we've seen on this show before distilled into the most frenetic, fast-paced fuckery that has been. I think that line is what I love you, but I can't fucking stomach you. And this is why I know, Adam, you were saying that you find the betrayal a bit bullshit. I think, you know, we see all those moments where Ken's talking it all up and she, we get these quick cuts to Shiv. And one, she's kind of despondently looking at the table. When Roman isn't sure, she's looking at Roman like, yeah, maybe you're right. And all these di these different moments. And I think it's when he says at the end, hey, come on, guys, let's do this for dad. Or it's what dad will want. I feel that's when she's like, actually, that's fucking disgusting. Fuck you. I would rather, I mean, she didn't need to say the stuff about him killing someone at all. If, she was gonna, if that was going to be a major issue for her, then that, that should have come up earlier on at the, at the mum's place, right? I it, agree. It was, I felt that was unnecessary and felt that was just like shoehorned in there to kind of ramp everything up. I would have preferred her not to have given a reason in a way. I, like her, her making that decision, fine, but her not to give a reason for it for me, would have been a, a better ending to it all. I, I just felt like this was all like, well, we need something big and dramatic for the last five minutes, and we're going to throw this stuff in there about his kids so that Roman gets something vile to say to Kendall, and Shiv's going to bring up the murder thing, and I, I just, yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of agree that you almost didn't need those things for it to get to the point of where it got to. You know, Kendall being incredibly desperate, because I think out of all of them, he's the one who's always wanted this. The others have sort of wavered. And the kind of panic that that might be about to to all the the wheels might be about to come off the wagon. I think that was enough to ramp up the tension without, as you say, like adding in those extra things. I think I get I kind of get why they did it. I get that it's kind of adding drama and and ramping everything up in those final five minutes. But I think for me, I still would have found that scene really tense, and I still feel like it would have gotten where it logically needed to go without those things being thrown in. But he's the eldest boy. I mean, he's not. But he is the eldest boy. Oh, that scream. I mean, he spat that out of his mouth and Shiv just laughed in his face. I think everything that followed that scene was perfect, was gorgeous. Like him going back in there and it's done. Ken having lost another vote. His exit with everybody else in the background really, really blurry. The awkward guy getting in the lift with him. <laughs> <laughs> That was beautiful. I just want to quickly jump back to, so when Kendall's got Roman's 
head in that kind of he's pressing down him Shiv says leave him alone he won't leave him alone she's like fuck this I'm getting out of here and she goes to open the door and then Roman turns around to put hands on Shiv Damo from the future here apologies for the aircon in the background I didn't mean Roman I meant Kendall and this is one of the few moments listen closely Neil one of the few moments I thought Roman was a legend because that's why it got into further physical altercation. Roman was not going to let Kendall put hands on Shiv. And I think that's why we ended up getting in that fight. He was like, no, you're not going to touch her. You can beat me all you want. You're not touching her. And that's why he then goes back in again for that second tussle that ends in that weird kind of headlock on the floor. It was a bit Game of Thrones, wasn't it? With the going for the eyes. Yeah. <laughs> Almost got very King Lear. <laughs> Yeah, uh, there's a lovely bit then when Tom comes in. Uh, we have Frank and Carl, nice little final moment with Frank and Carl, where they're, <laughs> I think Frank says, Carl, golden parachute or one last rodeo? And I'm thinking we should have slit his throat in the cradle in reference to Tom. And then we get the Tom and Greg scene, where <laughs> again, like Greg's fate is in the balance here, probably more than it's ever been. And I just thought it was perfect. Him putting a sticker on Greg's head and saying, you, you fucked it, man but I got you. Yeah, and just before that, he also talking about Frank and Carl. He says, Frank dead, Carl dead. Really don't need those two cunts on my shoulder. Yeah, the sticker was an amazing touch. Like, I own you now. Yeah, and he's he's not going to be on 200K. We all know that, right? There are no, as I said, there's no winners here. Greg's maybe, maybe managed to hold on to a job, but probably with, you know, a good 160 grand pay cut. Let's talk about the closing then. So we get Roman in a bar. I think he's probably the happiest out of all of them, right? There's one scene, yeah, is the signing of the contracts. Sorry. It's all right. (laughs) For the completionists. (laughs) Well, I mean, so what? Roman says he doesn't want any pics. He doesn't even want to fucking see Lucas. And he's forced into it. And this horrendous corporate nonsense, isn't it? As he's signing it, Matson says, what's the return policy on this sort of thing? They take the pictures. Oh, let's have a picture of, yeah, Frank, in you come, uh, Carl, in you come. They're dead. We're never seeing them again anyway, all that. And then Madsen says, like, Jesus and his disciples. And look, there's Judas over there. And whilst this is going on, Tom pops his head around the corner and says, I've got a car coming in 20 minutes. Do you want in to Shiv? First time around, I couldn't work out whether Shiv had shook her head or nodded it. It was the whole, is it underlined or crossed out again, wasn't it? 100. Right, can we finish this podcast then? So we get um, yeah, Roman, Roman in a bar. I, at this point, I was like, we're, we're going to see each of the siblings one by one. I want this to finish with Kendall on top of the building. I thought that was going to happen. I fully, fully thought that was where we were going. Me too. When he got in that lift, I thought he was going straight up to the top floor. And he's going to do an homage to the opening credits of Mad Men. We then get the back of Tom's head as he gets into the car, very reminiscent of the opening credits and Logan. Shiv is in the car. She puts her hand in his. Again, I felt kind of resigned and sad. It wasn't fully right. He he put his hand, turned his hand over for her to put hers in his, but she didn't, she didn't put it in. The fingers didn't interlock. She just kind of half put her hand on his hand. She's not all in. Yeah. Yeah, I totally read that as that as well. Also, just quick thing as well with Roman, he was drinking a martini, which I believe is Jerry's drink of choice. Which I thought was really interesting. Lovely. Yeah, the hand that was the saddest handhold I've ever seen in my life. Can and we I think even call it a handhold? 
it's like a hand place but yeah. I think for me Shiv has the saddest ending for me even more than Kendall and I know I'm team Shiv so I would say that but she was just like you say resigned and I just felt like when I was watching that I was like she has tried to play a game which was rigged from the start because no one sees her as an equal and that is all I could think as she was in that car well that's it her final position is she's not a woman in her own right she's Tom's wife yeah, and the, and they've had a complete power dynamic reversal, haven't they? And I think as well, I mean, I know I know I've said previously on the podcast in this episode that I feel like this is a kind of a show at its heart about intergenerational relationships and what we pass down. That kid is going to be so fucked up with <laughs> his parents. I just thought I thought I found that scene really bleak because I was like, they are going to stay together and they are going to try and make a family work, and it's going to be just like the Roy's, and she's going to give this kid the same childhood she had, and the cycle's going to repeat. Very much like the end of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, right? They've had that night of horrendous way of talking to each other and then, you know, the next day carries on, they've sobered up a little bit and rinse and repeat. Let's end with Kendall then, as the show does. So he's aimlessly walking through the park with Colin behind him, the bodyguard, the only part of Logan's legacy that remains. And he's really there, I think, to protect him from himself. Yes, 100. I thought, I just wrote down suicide watch, definitely. Yeah. And interesting that it ends with him looking out to the water, right? Because that's, again, it's been such a recurrent theme. Yeah, he's once again broken near a body of water and the sun sets on New York much as it's set on his ambitions. Lovely. Yes, uh, we've had the succession theme tune playing, don't we? And then it stops and we just hear the lapping of water for a moment before the credits come in and we get the orchestral sort of choral version of the theme music playing. Really, really lovely way to see the show out. Quick question for you. The Empire website, empire.com, are running a poll on the 10 greatest TV shows ever currently. Go and put your top 10 in there. Where does succession sit for you now? It's over in your kind of all-time list i think it's in the top 10 for me i don't know if it's number one but i do feel like that for me changes quite often but yeah it would, it would make that top 10 for me it's in my top five i'm in agreement with you izzy it's definitely a top 10 i don't know where i could place it within that though right now i don't know if it could be top five for me there was another show that that finished today and i'm controversially going to say that i don't think the succession finale was the best one out today was that barry yeah i watched i followed up my succession finale with the final episode ever of Barry and it was about as perfect a TV show finale as you can possibly get. Although not a TV show, a podcast I've mentioned before on this called The Offensive about a fake football team in Kent called Ashwood City also had its final episode released today and that, that was also quite upsetting for me. Um, I mean, I, I have just started watching Barry. I'm about halfway through season one so I am now going to have to just stay off the internet until I finish in three to four months time um, which would be great for everyone but yeah we've got quite a few finales so Yellow Jackets Adam and I just recap the finale for that um, and then Ted Lasso obviously we're doing on Thursday I believe. But I do have news of not a finale uh, so inside number nine the final episode of season eight was out last week but it's not the final season. I thought it was I thought they confirmed that and I was just like well, that's stupid because it's called Inside Number Nine. They are doing a season nine. Uh, the other thing that I learned was that quiz show episode that we talked about previously of Inside Number Nine. If you watched that live, there was like a continuity announcer who came on and said, sorry, we're not going to be able to show you the latest episode of Inside Number Nine. Instead, we're going to give you this game show. 
So there was a whole fake out thing with that episode, which I thought was genius. They did that before with another episode, a Halloween one, where they started showing another one. So I fell for that completely. I went, oh, for fuck's sake, we've seen this one before, and turned off, and then Raluca was on Twitter like, wait, what's going on? No! Yeah, yeah, I remember they did that with the Halloween one. But yeah, that's very good TV. But yeah, the the kind of uh, type A in my brain is very happy they're doing nine nine series. Sorry, Adam, I know you're desperate to go home. But what is this I'm hearing about a possible Logan origin story show? Adam's pitching it to Apple TV. (laughs) all right get on with it adam okay i will do i will do i was considering making us all end this podcast by singing aga do 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 uh but let's let's end it in the traditional way with your favorite lines whilst you're picking those i will remind our listeners that we have well specials about to finish on yellow jackets and ted lasso that you can also listen to and our weekly watch list episodes which are spoiler free covering the best of the rest of tv we will of course be back with another special show that we'll do episode by episode or similarly in the future. And we've also just released episode 200 of the podcast, our 200th episode, which was a real pleasure to record uh, yesterday morning uh, and is a great listen. You can follow us on social media at TVDNAPod or you can email TVDNAPod at gmail.com. Give us a rating and a review and a follow wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's have your favourite line of the episode. Damien. Cunt is as cunt does. For me, it's don't touch that. That's Peter's cheese, his special cheese. He gets really boring about it. (laughs) I have to give it to Roman. I'm sorry, I've got to do it all. It's fucking nothing. It's bits of glue and broken shows and phony news. We are bullshit. You're bullshit. I'm bullshit. She's bullshit. I'm telling you this because I know it. We're nothing. Oh, and that would have been the one to end on. But I'm going with, how is your sea bass? Those cod cheeks are worthy opponents. From my winner, Tom Wamsgams. Nearly went for that one myself. Congratulations on your win, Adam. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. We've thoroughly enjoyed Succession and we hope you have too. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these podcast episodes, just talking about the shows. So much fun. Do check out Dream Song 29 if you haven't already, because it's lines from that other episode titles of each of the finales of each of the four seasons and I think it gives a lot of insight into what the show makers were aiming to do with this brilliant brilliant show succession over and out